while we're still on reformation this year, it's, it's good. And as we discussed, the topics for 52 weeks were prayerfully sought by the Lord. Sought, I sought him for these topics in December of last year. We listed them through one through 52 weeks. And so far, every week that we've talked about whatever the topic the Lord saw fit to give us last year, it has been spot on. Would you not agree that it's found a way to reach us and touch us and speak to us? Very right now, very living word, very present help. Would you agree? So when I got to this week and I looked at the topic, I said to myself, there's an error here. I have made a mistake. Apparently, we have not exhausted all that the Spirit of the Lord would like to tell us about this. And according to its matter of information, it is good that we learn today more about being reformed through perseverance. You're going you're gonna to persevere. You're going to have to hear it twice. <laughs> Once I, God spoke twice, I heard that power belongs to God. And perseverance is key. It is, it is appropriate and accurate. The first time we looked at perseverance on whatever month that was, several, several weeks ago, through the scriptures of God, we came to the conclusion that the testing of our faith produces perseverance, and, per- and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. So we looked at the necessity of perseverance, that we might keep our faith, that we can endure trials and tribulations and persecutions, that we could remain very faithful in situations that were beyond our control. For the most part, that is the imagery that we had within our minds sicknesses and diseases, car accidents and problems, things that that we couldn't control that now have befallen our lives and we're like, you know what? Let's persevere. Let's keep hope, let's keep focus, let's drive forward. Today in the title and topic of perseverance, I do not want to look at that. Let's go to Galatians chapter six, verses seven through nine. Galatians chapter six, Verses 7 through 9. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will reap. For he who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. A couple of things we looked at this verse a couple months months ago, and we understood that you can't trick God. You can't sow a little bit and expect a lot of it. You can fool everybody else that you tried so hard, did so much. Oh, my goodness. The tears could flow. The tone could elevate that you just, oh. But you can't deceive God. He knows like you know that you just sold a little bit. 
You did not sow all that you had. You did not put all that you had. And yet and still, when it's harvest time, you are declaring and decreeing in <laughs> <laughs> an attempt to make sure that you get the same harvest as those that are getting a hundredfold. Then you look around and go, I didn't get the same types of blessings. I never get those same types of blessings. Why does it ever happen for me? When is it going to be my turn? Why do I take two steps forward and three steps back? Hello? Now, the Lord is excellent at multiplying and producing. So if you ever find yourself, just a side note, taking two steps forward and falling three steps back, it is not the Father. It is you. There's something unadjusted within your life. Because God is not fooled. He knows that you didn't fully delete the number. He knows that you did not sever all ties. He knows that you did not block, unfriend, unfollow. He knows that you still got that stash sitting somewhere in a quiet place in the corner of your house. He knows that you can't really walk away because you never know when you might have to go back to that. My baby Shamar came to my house, and after a couple of weeks now, I recognized his suitcase was still packed. And I went up to his room and I said, where's his suitcase still here? And I was going to try to put it in the closet for him, you know, get this out of his way. And I realized it was stuff in that suitcase. A couple weeks went by, suitcase still there. I said to him, I said, Shamar, because I need you to unpack your suitcase and take it down to the basement. Where all suitcases go when we travel. We only get them to travel. She says to me, cuz, well, you never know. You might kick me out and have to pack up my stuff, and I'll say, I already got it packed, and I'll just roll on out. I looked at him, and I said, well, that's not home. If you got to be ready to move out at any given moment, it is not my fault that you have not made this home in your mind. I don't want to help me. I could give you privileges. I could establish setups. I could hold you accountable, give you responsibilities. I could do everything I can to tell you and make you feel very at home here. But it is not my fault that in you, you have to be ready to leave. It's not. Not the heart of the Father. And it wasn't my heart. So something has to change. You're going to have to get rid of the idea that you're going to have to leave at any given point. See, I can't move his suitcase for him because it's his. Do you understand? Yeah. He has to move it for himself. Yeah. Yeah, That's yeah. the work of it, to take everything out, unpack it, find a place for things in your own room, then take that suitcase because you know you're not going to need it anytime soon and take it downstairs to the basement. Let it get dusty and old. Yeah. That's where it belongs. Because as long as you have a suitcase... Visible in your surroundings, you will always remember the idea that nothing, you can never be satisfied, you can never rest, you can never take home. And that makes your existence very uneasy. Wow. That's so good. It's not the Father's will that you live like that. That's so good, but it is your attachment to the idea of protecting yourself from further pain. 
but scared money. Don't make money. You don't want to get rid of the suitcase. You don't want to get rid of the thing because you are afraid at some point that if you just relax in this, the same type of pain that caused you to have this suitcase in the first place might show up again to your life. But faith without works is, and how you know that the Lord has delivered unless you, unless you add works to your Hello? Yeah, that's good, you know how many dumb times in my life I kept trying something that I failed at in hopes that this time would be the time that I didn't fail at it? I've unpacked my suitcase and situations of my life over and over and over and over again. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to unpack it because this might be the time. <laughs> Only be like, take it, it was not the time. Take my stuff. Go back. Okay, this is the time. This is the time. This is the time. I unpack it. Everything is good. Me and the Lord, we doing our devotionals. We reading, going to church every day. Mm, mm. Dang it. Give my stuff. You can't do no devotions no more. Just I ain't going to do nothing. Every time, the, the, the determining factor of when you no longer have to unpack your stuff and stay is the fact that you unpacked it the last time. And sometimes you just decide, well, I ain't going to get completely comfortable. Just a little bit comfortable. I'm not going to completely settle. Just a little bit settle. And then you never really settle fully. Hello? Yeah, that's good. I don't know who this is for, but there you go. There's, there's, that's for you. Amen? Amen? The Lord says, he's not mocked. He's not deceived. What you sow is what you reap. If you sow to the flesh, you don't reap the flesh. If I sow a seed... A lemon seed in the ground. I do not reap lemons. I reap a lemon tree. Yeah. Then after that, I reap fruit. And then in that fruit, then I get lemon seeds. Yeah. Yeah. So those who sow to the flesh, it's not that you get flesh. You first get a tree, then you get fruit, and then you get corruption. Oh. The issue with the corruption of the seed, the seed that you get, is now you can have more sin. It started off as one sin. Now it is a tree with the potential of a ton of sin. He said, but if you sow to the spirit, right, then you will reap everlasting. Do you see that there? And from the spirit, you will reap eternal life. So now if you sow things to the spirit, uh, I'm serving by way of like I serve the Lord. I'm, I'm giving as if I'm giving to the Lord. I'm, I'm reading. I'm, I'm all the things. I'm doing things at, with God the Father and the kingdom of God at mind. Then you reap eternal life. And what is the joy of reaping that? I mean, yes, down the road is very happy. But when you start seeing your tree come up, when you start seeing leaves on that tree, when you start seeing fruit on that tree, big ripe apples, you say, oh my God, there's an assurance of your salvation. There's an assurance that God is redeeming. You have more joy just watching the thing that finally came out the ground. Yeah, that's I can't go into all the reasons why people don't see good fruit come up. But there's other scriptures that will indicate that for us. Toward the latter clause of these verses in verse 9, Paul says to the church in Galatia, and let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall what? 
reap if we do not faint, or if we faint not or lose heart. All of those work. Yes. It's the due season part that gets us. It's the due season part. That doggone due season. Because some things we want it to be the season. It need to be the season for prosperity. The season for growth. The season for ministry. The season for anointing. The season for calling. The season for marriage. The season for babies. It needs to be the season. And then it don't be. The problem that I've noticed is when things show up, like the tree sprouts up, you don't really know what tree that is until you see the fruit. All right? And God is like, I already know what kind of tree that is. You should know too. You done sold more doggone lemon trees than you ever sold at apple trees. You understand what I'm saying? So he's he's not mocked. It's us. So the issue here is sometimes if you've been in that place where you don't know if something good that has happened to your life is really from God or not. Anybody ever been there? Like, I don't really know if this is from the Lord because down the road it could be something. I've had things in my life where I thought it was God and then it was. I've had situations I felt excited about it. I thought it was the Lord and then it turned out it was, it was not the Lord at all, not at all, not at all. Right? And then there are other things we're like, oh, that is the Lord. Look at the God. Look at how he did that. Look at how he did that. He gave me that job, and I got a promotion. All right? Then look at how God did that. He gave me that job. Then I got fired, and I lost my house. Whoa. Apparently that job did not. We would conclude that the job may not have come from the Lord. Or maybe at the job you had an extramarital affair. We would conclude that that job came from Satan. You understand? You would, we would conclude that whatever the action is that happened within that blessing, at the end of we'll go, well, maybe that is good. It came from the Lord because God gives us nothing but good things. Or it's from Satan. Now, I got a trick for you that can help you figure out whether something is good or bad. And it's not how it looks when it's presented. It's not even how it looks in process. It's the effects that it has on your soul. It's the effects that it has on your soul. It's the due season part of this scripture that exhausts us. When we are waiting on good things, that due season part makes us overly, when we are waiting on good things, that good due season makes us very anxious, makes us rush, makes us move quickly, make mistakes and carelessness. I don't know, but that due season with good stuff, we just get impatient, don't we? can't wait for it and we can make mistakes from something good waiting on the thing that is good that due season even with something good can mess you up because you notice what God called you to but now in the midst of that approach you've fallen into more sin tragic then you go well maybe this calling did not come from the Lord Uh -uh uh-uh-uh that's not how you determine it And then there's the due season part that makes more problems when it's something we don't want. Sowing to the flesh and sowing to the spirit, right? So the bad stuff that might be coming in due season, that due season still gets us. Because since the, the consequences of the bad thing, the fruit 
of the bad thing that we sow to the flesh is not here. We grow complacent. Hello? We grow overly confident because the time of planting of that sowing to the flesh and the time of reaping, hello, somebody, that space in between, you just think everything is all right. You think that the Lord forgave you and it's fine. And then when the consequences show up in due season, you are befuddled. Like, I thought God dealt with me about this. Did he or did you just repent? You can feel bad when you repent. And then you can feel bad when you have to deal with the consequences. Right? Both things are true. <laughs> when the bad stuff happens, and you can tell the consequences is coming, right? Maybe you don't know right away. Maybe you're thinking, I might have missed it. Maybe I hope I missed it. Right? Yeah. Maybe God's mercy just whoosh, washed that away. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does not. We're going to look at that later. But I realized that there are two types of people in the world based off of their childhood. <laughs> I remember growing up and I got in trouble at school. Now, I was a latchkey kid because both my parents worked. And so I would come home, have to lock the door. And people are like, what's a latchkey? Oh, my God. Because when kids, when they come home and there's no parent home, the parents are working. So thus they have to come in and take the key that was latched to their clothing. <laughs> and lock the door, because your parents latched it to you so you won't lose it, all right? They call them latchkey kids. So I would go home. This is most of the time for parents that work long hours, well past the after school program, <laughs> right? So now you go and unlock the door, and I have to call my mom, say I'm here, and then I have to tell her if something happened in school. And I got a letter from the, the teacher. And she would give me some phrase that sounded like, you wait till I get home. It would just shed, just, just bring terror. It was one time we were out at my Uncle Jackie's apartment one day. And all the kids outside in the apartment was like, yeah, we're going to run cut through the, through, the, through, the, through the woods and go to the, uh, the convenience store, right? And I was like, mm -mm. my mama said I gotta stay out here. They was like, we just gonna write, it's just right there. We're gonna go right there and come right back. They won't even know. And I was like, mm, I don't know. Like, come on. And one of my cousins like, come on, Tab. Don't do like that. Ugh. Fine. So we get out there, and I hear my mom calling my name. And we is in the woods. And my friends say. Well, we already in trouble now. We might as well go ahead and go to the store. See, there's two types of people in the world. Y'all don't want to help me. See, I, I was like, no. We, we should not keep going. We should now turn around and go back. Too far. We done messed up too much. Other people say, well, we already in it now. We might as well go ahead and enjoy ourselves. And this part does not make sense to me because it is no way that I can enjoy anything knowing that I have a butt whooping coming up in just a moment. I'm not going to want the candy. I don't want the chips. I don't want the nowelators. I don't want none of it. Come on, let's get it. I'm not happy. I don't even want my candy. I'm sick. I'm, I can't even eat. <laughs> Two types of kids. Some kids say, well, if the punishment ain't now, let me go ahead and enjoy it. 
Other kids say, I don't want no punishment. Is there a way I can fix it? Can I clean the house before mommy get here? Maybe she'd be so happy that I done spiffed up everything and she won't, she won't kill me. One type of person tries to make it better before the consequences. The other type of person tries to just enjoy it since they're going to get trouble anyway. Now, bear in mind, neither one of these automatically determines whether you'll get consequences or not. There's only one reason that you get consequences, and we're going to look at that next. Amen? Amen? Let's look at James, James 1. James 1, chapter Chapter 1, verse 12. James 1, chapter 1, verse 12. Now, a study was done on 147 eighth graders, 148 graders, right? And the study was done to determine how important is self-discipline amongst children's performance. So out of 148th graders, they gave them an IQ test, measured some other things, a whole bunch of tests, and determined that the students with greater self-discipline, that means read more, watch less TV, and all that kind of stuff, that they almost doubled in performance those who tested with a higher IQ. Wow. I knew that was true. Because everybody, you're so smart. I was not smart. I was just a very hard worker. I was. It says, so they're saying that you don't even have to be smart in order to maximize your potential intellectually. You just have to have a lot of what? Self-discipline. That people that are just naturally born smart, you can surpass them. I mean, double over just by having discipline. Hello? That's good, I thought that was pretty good. Yes, good to see. Probably why he calls us disciples. Because he knows how important discipline is to the fruitfulness of your life. Are you there at James? Yes. Did I tell you what the focus was on this particular? Re- Reformation through perseverance. But we're looking at sin. All day. It's sin. It's Reformation through perseverance as it relates to sin. Now, I don't know what y'all been doing. I assumed nothing. I assumed everybody was just tip-top shape, right? So maybe, since it's not for anybody in here today, whoever it's for, maybe they didn't even come to church today. <laughs> right? Maybe it's for just in case down the future, down the road. You might need a little equipment in your bag. Hello? Now, for those of you that are sin-free, where you've just been living and you don't even struggle with sin no more, I'm sorry this message may not be for you. We hope that you can endure with the rest of us as we try to learn new techniques and, and have the living word poured into us that we might stop sinning. All right? So for some, this might be a completely boring topic. You much rather, you need something else. But unfortunately, this is what the Lord gave me. So we're dealing with perseverance as it relates to sin. Because we love looking at perseverance as it relates to persecution and suffering. 
But there is something very unique about continuing in being holy, coming right off the heels of reformation through love. And most believers struggle at some point with remaining holy. It shouldn't be. And in America, it's harder for the most part because our enemy is covert. Because I'm sure if there was somebody knocking on our doors telling us, you better leave Jesus alone, that we'd be more singularly focused on holiness if our very faith was being attacked. But the attack of our faith is so subdued that we don't even have the same passion to resist it. And we have so much comfort that we don't have the same desperation to resist it. Right? So now Satan makes us comfortable. The due season makes us complacent. Our environment gives us too much ease. And then we fall right back into it. Are we there, James? The rest of us, are we there, James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures trial, for, which, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. What I love about this verse is trial and temptation is that initially I thought, (laughs) bless the man who endures trial. I thought to myself, this is the trial of your faith. This is the persecution of the gospel. Hmm? I thought that this must be trials like persecution and martyrdom and, you know, false doctrines. And then he says specifically that this trial is about temptation. The temptation to sin. And he goes on to say, this trial has not been given to you by God. Because he tempts no one. The fact that you have this trial is because of your own desires. People say, well, why would God bring that to my life? Why would he let that happen? Uh, no. We both could be walking by the grocery store and see a huge chocolate cake, and if I don't like sweets, hello, somebody, I walked by the same cake and felt nothing. But if you have a profinity for sweets, you, you don't understand what I'm saying, and you like a lot of chocolate, and this thing is triple-layered chocolate with fudge, and I mean, just just dripping with gooey yumness. And it was just last week you told yourself, I'm going to go on a diet. Got to put some of these sweets down. Now, both of us are walking by the same cake, and only one of us actually sees the cake as a threat. 
only one of us is questioning, why do we have to come to this grocery store? Why is this the only grocery store on the block? Why would God even, it's the only place I could go. Since it's the only place I could go, why is this chocolate cake here? Now, you're forgetting that there was another person walking with you to which that cake had no effect. The problem is not the cake. The problem is not your environment. The problem is not your circumstance. The problem is not your childhood. The problem is not your hormones. The problem is your desire. We're going to have to look at this, right? Because I, on last week we looked at how people fall into sin all the time as believers. And I said there's a lot of hurdles you got to jump through to fall into sin, especially sexual sin as a believer. And this thing has been ringing in my ears because when Christians fall into sexual sin, more than likely it always involves somebody else. Now, you have your circle of friends and family that will see and notice your fall, right? That could be quite a few people. You don't even know how many of your friends thought you to be a role model. You don't even know just because they didn't say nothing, right? Your brothers in your church, sisters in, in the church, same church, considered you mature and strong in the Lord, and here you go. So you got your circle that's affected. And the person you sin with has their circle. So in essence, you have also done damage to every person that saw the person you were with do it to. And this kind of thing bothers me as your pastor because I would like for the Father to use us greatly in spreading the gospel and reaching the lost, but we are extremely ineffective with the, if the same people that preach the gospel are the same people that fall victim to sin and temptation. Because it makes, it makes the Spirit of God appear as if it's not strong enough to keep a believer. That that believer's desire is stronger than the gospel and the Spirit of God to which it is not. But we have no way of explaining that, that theology to them. Well, see, even though I sin, let me talk to you for a second. See, I'm, see I, we have a spirit, a soul, and a body. And considering I sin, you cannot walk around explaining that. It's, it's even harder for parents to have to have that conversation with the children that saw them sin. Do what I say, not as I do. What, what? It's very difficult to explain why, as a believer with the Spirit of the Lord, you continuously fall into the same sin. Well, what is continuously? I don't know. How often do you think continuously is? To me, a pattern only takes two. What's your definition? Pattern just takes two. So this entire verse is dealing specifically with sin and temptation. This is not God that brings this to you. He did not. This is about your own desire. And when that desire meets with opportunity, right, then it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. A dove, because that sin tree's got so many seeds on it that your whole garden is going to be infiltrated with sin. That means everything's dying 
at some point. You can't even hide that as a believer. We will see it. We will sense it. It's in your attitude. It's in your tone. And what I love, it's in the level of your discouragement. I'm going to show you in just a second. Verse 16 of that same chapter of James 1 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift or every good endowment and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's beautiful. Simply beautiful. Let's look at another verse, 2 Corinthians. Well, before you go there, go to Psalms 119. The book of Psalms, 119, verses 71 through 72. I want you to highlight this. Because I said earlier, that trying to determine whether something came from God or came from Satan is extremely difficult if you try to look at just how the event ended. Did it end well or did it end good? That's hard to say because we've all had things that ended good that came to find out it was the worst thing. Then we have things that ended bad and come to find out it was the best thing. So how something or situation ends does not help us in trying to determine whether that good thing came from God. What you can do, use to determine if it was, came from God is how that thing affected your soul. Or should I say infected? Infected or affected your soul. That friendship could be determined from God based on how it affected your soul. That job could be determined from God based on how it affected your soul. That ministry affect how it affects you presently, not just future, can give you a clearer understanding of whether that thing came from God or not. This excludes all temptation because that never comes from him. Psalms 119 says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Thy law of thy mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. David says, even on things that had terrible outcomes, I recognize that that thing taught me your law and in it began to teach me who you are and that was a good thing. And in most cases, it wasn't the sin that taught you. It was the consequences that the father brought from the sin that became your affliction. God did not bring the temptation. That's your desire. But when it has turned into sin, if he loves you, he will bring consequences. And those consequences are parts of your affliction. And you got one or two things you could do. You could be mad that you're always afflicted. Or you can take joy because you recognize how he's teaching you his commands and his statutes. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures, so um, just jot them down if you like. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
Stop right there. Paul is talking about a type of affliction and persecution that happened to him that they, they, they thought they were going to die, surely. But what I like to point out is that this believer was afflicted so much that he wanted to die. You, some of y'all need to see that that exists in Scripture. Yeah. And that mighty men and women of God feel that yeah. when times of affliction are so utterly burdened beyond our strength. That believers have that same situation. This is, this is beyond my strength. And you know you're there because you're like, I don't even want to live. Now, saying I don't want to live and saying I want to kill myself are two different things. If you struggle with that, talk to me in a meeting. All right? Set a meeting. But it's not the same thing. So he says, we just wanted to die. Okay? It was better that we just died because this is so painful, so overwhelming. Now, watch what happens next. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on our what? Selves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says, it was so overwhelming to us that we didn't even want to live anymore. But we could see how God brought that type of affliction to our hearts that we would learn to rely on him. See, prior to this point, you always thought that you could think your way, will your way, desire your way, push your way, you know, get on yourself about it, wrap your mind around it. You always thought that you had the mental capacity to just set your tone, set your direction if you wanted to. Just give me a couple days, then I'm going to set it for myself. Then let me just do this, handle this, and I'm, I'll be all right. Let me just move this out of the way, cut people off for a second, then I'm going to get it together. And you've always been able, so you thought to handle any displeasing thing you find in your life. Then there comes one. It only takes one. Just takes that one that says, I can't do nothing. I can't do nothing for myself. I can't make myself feel better. Not today, not tomorrow, not next year. See, that ain't you. After a month or so, you'll be all right. Once your money get better, you'll be fine. Once you get a good night's sleep a couple times, you'll be all right. Once you fix this situation, you'll be fine. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the type of situations where you could see what needs to be adjusted and see that it will help your situation. Yeah. This is about those types of afflictions where there does not exist any ability that you have to see or think or do to fix your situation, to fix your heart. He said, the Father did this, that we will learn to rely on him and not ourselves. That's huge. In essence, every time before then, every other time of affliction, every other time of discouragement, every other time of oppression and depression, you truly relied on yourself. You relied on yourself to read your devotional. You relied on yourself to pray. You relied on yourself to go to church. You relied on yourself. To do the things you know you needed to do. But then there are things that you can't. And that breaks you. And when you come to praise and worship, you don't have to be coaxed into praising. You could have a terrible day coming to praise and worship and be like, let's get it on. 
because I recognize the joy that I have from the spirit of the Lord to my spirit is not coming from me, but it's coming from him. So you don't know that that kind of joy and praise could come from him because every other time you had to conjure it up within you. And if you didn't have a good day, good week, good month, good year, then it could not be found in you. And you would sit in service like Willie Lump Lump and just could not get into it. Now that's nobody in here currently because no one really is at that stage. You just need to get some sleep. Get some food in your tummy. Then you'll be all right. But there's an affliction that he brings so that you learn not to rely on yourself. That is humbling and a necessity. To be in so much pain and agony that you can't do anything to fix it. And short of losing your mind, you could only turn to the Father. You're going to have to do something. I can't do nothing. Can't. Paul goes on to say in the same verse, which I love, he says, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is how I think. I think like this. I go to my afflicted place and I recognize what's the worst that could happen. And I start listing all the worst things that can happen while I'm in this state. Oh, this could happen, that could happen, this could happen, that could happen. And then in that I go, but God can raise the dead. See that part. When I realize that even at my lowest of lows, God can still raise, there's no life in it at all. It's not that it actually, you don't, you don't, help me, you don't want to help me. And every other time you had a little bit of life, you don't want to, you had a little bit of breath, you had a little bit of blood flow, you had a little bit of excitement, you had a little bit of hope, but on this situation, you are dead. And now you recognize I serve a God that raises the dead. He raises the dead. A lot of y'all can't feel it. You can't feel me even though you think you're feeling me. You ain't. Because you haven't been there. Where you had nothing. Now I'll tell you right now, you're not there today because you're here. If you're here, you've had something. You've had something. Some motivation, whether good, bad, or indifferent. Something that you could pull on to wake up, to stay strong, to serve God, to show up. That's nobody here today. Put this in your pocket for future. And if you lived it, add clarity and truth to what God was doing. Because he's a God that raises the dead so he can take when there is nothing. And lift it. When a believer sees that. When we recognize that my efforts are not a necessity for your salvation. Y'all don't want to help me today. That my efforts, my work, and my deeds are not a necessity to be saved by you. That my efforts is not a necessity for joy. That my efforts is not a necessity for peace. That what I do is not necessary for any good thing that God wants to give me. It means you can come right in to praise the worship. Missing something. And you know why you're missing it? Because you messed up. You didn't handle that right. Didn't do that right. And that does not matter. Because he's a God that raises the dead. 
you have zero to contribute to your joy today and it was your fault hello somebody and it does not even matter because he's the God that raised the dead he did not need you to give him a little bit of something that you did in order for him to raise you up when believers recognize this we have freedom we're not afraid to say I'm sorry this house struggles with that. It struggles with be my apologize. It struggles with I'm sorry. And then if 70% could actually say it, they can't say it sincerely. The only level of depth of their sincerity for 70% of this house is to the extent that that problem has inflicted pain on their lives. Like, I'm really sorry because truly, I can see how it affected me. Now, I'm really sorry because truly, I can could, I could see how pastor started fussing at me. Truly, I can see how now I ain't got no money. Truly, I can see how now this thing got out. You all, you're sorry. It's only at the depth of how it affected you. And that's 70% of this house. And it's a very small percentage that actually apologized with the amount of sincerity that they could have hurt and inflicted upon somebody else. Like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I could just see from your perspective what, what I could have done, how that could have made you feel. There are no words I have to make it right, but I just want you to know I, I'm truly sorry. Because at the end of the day, anybody that's offended just wants empathy. Can you feel what I'm feeling? Because when you apologize and you don't even recognize how it made me feel, it is flat. It's flat. So most of my conversations are, well, can you see it from their point of view? Well, can you see it from their perspective? Uh -uh, but I didn't do it. And it's just so defensive. Where you need to see somebody else is hurting here. And surprisingly, the Lord does not want to heal your hurt until you are concerned about somebody else's hurt. Why would he heal your hurt so you can keep hurting people? Now you're just prideful. I messed up, but oh well, thank you, Jesus. I feel fine. He's trying to show you something. Can you feel what they feel? Can your heart ache? Even if you caused it. And Beck, I'm so sorry. I never wanted that to happen. I did not want it to happen. I, I should have done better. And I'm sorry. I could see how that could have affected you. People hear that and they're like, thank you. A deep, thank you. That alone has healing potential. It really does. But apologies based off of how bad it affected you or how bad it looked or how bad I fussed are lackluster. But when you recognize that God can raise the dead, then you're not afraid of having wrong actions. The problem of giving the apology is that you'd have to recognize your wrongdoing. And for those of you that are used to accepting that I only am loved when I do right, then you have a hard time acknowledging off the top something you've done wrong because this thing cannot be labeled as you because you don't get this right and I can't this right and I thought I got that right. So you resist even trying to show physically that you did something wrong because it will affect your identity. 
to fix your identity. Now people are going to think that I'm the kind of person. Or this is, she's going to think that I'm the kind of person. He's going to think that I'm the kind of person. I mean, I'm sorry that it happened, but that wasn't my intention. What you're trying to say is I'm not the type of person that will intentionally do this. It's still about how you are going to be identified through your own actions. Your apology is lackluster. Do you understand? Well, he said, no, I, 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 I can see how that made you feel. I'm sorry. Truly. What can I do to make it better? I love when you add that. What can I do? I think that this could cause some long-term situations. What can I do? Can I, can I buy you lunch? <laughs> can we just go hang out? Can I do something? Can I wash the car for you? What, what, what you got going on? What did I cause that I could kind of say? Let me help you with that. That's beautiful. That's the heart that this church is supposed to have. Do you understand? Because when we know he raised from the dead, God raised things from the dead, then we can go, sometimes I just don't have it. Y'all don't want to help me today. Sometimes I just don't have it. Sometimes I have nothing. Sometimes I am the worst person you could ever meet. Sometimes I am the absolute scum of the earth. Sometimes I am the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. Sometimes I am impatient. I am moody. I am aggravated. I am depressed. Sometimes I am angry. I am vicious. I am vindictive. I am petty. I am deceptive. People that are close to me, I challenge them every time on that. On finding the baser thing that caused this action and then truly identifying that you had it. And when people have a hard time identifying that they are the type of person that does that thing, you don't hang around me. Because anything I do to you that you don't like, I'm going to affect your identity. You see that? If I do something you don't understand or don't like, now I'm going to mess up how you feel and how you feel about God and how God feels about you. And it's all being a whole bunch of mess, right? But people that can say, I was selfish. Completely. I was so inconsiderate, Pastor. That was, that was my baser self. I go, well, this happens sometimes. And we can move on. But people that have a hard time wanting to admit that, I mean, I only did it because you did this. I only said that because you said this. That's not even how I was thinking. Because I have to admit my baser self. And we can only flow together if we both can identify. With me and dad, you know what I love about me and daddy is when we're both hurting, he can identify it with me. And I'll be like, dad, this stuff, he said, it does suck. And we ain't got to be theological. We ain't got to be deep. And truly, we don't even try to encourage each other. We just be like, this sucks. It does suck. I want to quit. Me too. Well, if you don't quit, I won't quit. All right, well, we won't quit. <laughs> you know, most people talk to me, well, don't feel like that. Don't be like that. I'm like, I don't need you to lift me up, okay? Just a different kind of feeling. Shut up. <laughs> I need to feel it for a second. Because every day I'm trying not to feel it in order to serve. So I can call my dad and he'd be like, yup. He identifies with it. He don't try to sugarcoat it. He don't try to brush it off because it makes him uncomfortable because he doesn't know what to say because it's not even about that. Amen? Amen. 
when you recognize that sometimes you don't have it. You don't mind admitting it. And you got to go back, and some of y'all admit it, but you got to go back and change it. Like when I said that, Pastor, what I really should have said, no. Because, you know, sometimes I do be doing, no, you don't. That wasn't that. If you do do that, that wasn't that time. Amen? Amen. Let's look at Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 first. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 18 and 19. Let's look at verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Everybody say amen. I have to check to make sure it comes off the, the heels of understanding Christ's sacrifice, right? Understanding that there's a forgiveness of sin, and he opens in verse 18, he, he kind of comes to the conclusion of verse 18, that when a believer sins, having the knowledge of who Christ is, there is now no other sacrifice to erase that sin. And then when there's forgiveness of sin, right, you no longer need an offering. So the earlier parts of the verses of this chapter were saying that Christ was the ultimate offering, the high priest and the offering. And so now if you believe that and you have forgiveness, you don't have to do any other offerings. All right? You don't have to give God anything. He counts you as righteous. If you're not required to prove your goodness, if you're not required to prove your goodness, y'all don't want to help me today. If you no longer have to prove that you're not that bad of a person, if you no longer have to prove that you're not doing that kind of stuff anymore, if you no longer have to prove that that's not how you live anymore, how freeing is that? And he says, in Christ, you don't have to prove that at all. Not at all. So if something does show up, you don't have to be afraid to admit it because you don't have to prove that you're not that type of person. I'm not that kind of person, so I don't mind admitting it. How do you know that I'm not? How do you know you're not that kind of person? Because Christ <laughs> paid it all. That's, <laughs> I'm not that kind of person. I'm not there anymore. That's not me. But you did this. I know it, and that's why I am so sorry. Because I can't afford for this to be a pattern. And I don't want hurting you to be a pattern. I don't want offending you to be a pattern. And I'm so sorry. You can admit it flat-footed, without no sugarcoating, without no buffer language. Do you understand? Yeah. Even without explanation. And that's really hard for some of y'all to say sorry without explaining. Like, most of y'all don't even know how. You know how many times I say I'm sorry to people for stuff I didn't even do? Well, Pastor, I just feel like you, 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 you reject me. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry you feel that way. Truly, I'm sorry if I, I'm sorry I did. What example do you have? I could see how that felt like rejection. I am so, so, so sorry. Sometimes I get it wrong. Can you forgive me? And truly, I didn't even do nothing wrong. <laughs> but I don't care because an apology will heal your heart right now. And me apologizing does not change my identity. God still knows who I am. It ain't no record. If it's a court of law, then Christ already paid it. So even if they say, well, they did admit to this, it does no effect. Do you understand? Yeah. 
Y'all getting this? You getting this part? All right. Sometimes you is evil. No, sometimes Satan did use you. You. Yeah, you. Yeah, you. Sometimes, no, you was not grown in the Lord. Sometimes, no, you did not notice. Sometimes, no, you missed it altogether. Sometimes you are selfish. Sometimes you're just mean for no reason. Me and Joel were playing golf with Shamar. Now, Shamar is learning how to play. He loves it. And I'm glad he loves it because that really fits us very well. Like he's addicted to it, loves it like me. And every so often, he'll have a good shot. And his good shot is right on the heels of Jewel's shot. Now, y'all know Jewel plays professional tennis. So when she hits a shot, she hits it. It could be far in the trees, far in the mountains, but it is far. And so as Shamar is getting better, Jewel starts feeling competitive. See, when I said that in my mind I have to compete against Jewel, she didn't understand it. She couldn't understand how it felt that way. Because, you know, Pastor, I'm really not that good. How could you ever? I don't really play as much as you do. How could you ever feel that way? But when Shamar came and I almost got on her heels and he only been playing for three weeks, Now you understand. And she was quick to admit it. She didn't have to hide it. She's like, oh, good for you. Because <laughs> I play with people that try to hide their mad. They try to secretly mess up your shot. They don't, they don't know I know. But I know. They stand in such a way. Crowd me up. You know, I can't. Subconsciously, I'm feeling like. And they start talking. Open the rappers. <laughs> I don't even help you find your ball. Where's my ball? I don't know. Found mine, though. Oh, 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 look at you. Look at you. It's like this quiet tension. But when you can admit it, that this is my baser self, me being human, and this sucks about me, but I am overly competitive. And you can admit it that everybody can have fun with it. You can get all of your, she can get all of her competitive nature out, and Shamar understands, he just hits it back at her. And I just be sitting there watching the show. <laughs> like, oh, you got to make this shot, don't you? Because his last shot was good. <laughs> Pressure. <laughs> Tuesday, they have a match coming up. Just two of them. Where considering they talk so much smack, I said, well, why don't y'all keep score? Because everybody's decent at golf until you have to keep score. Golf is easy about having decent shots every once in a while when you're not keeping score. When you're keeping score and you got six shots around the hole that is two inches. That's, you got to count every last one of them. That's six, seven, all right, eight. That ain't even counting the three that it took back here. So, you know, so I, I'm looking forward to this match on Tuesday. Cause I'm gonna be their scorekeeper. Nah, that counts. I don't know. You gotta count that. But I dropped my club. Oh well, you hit the ball. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I can't wait to see that. <laughs> Cause I think keeping score will humble both of them, whether not in comp competition, but camaraderie. Okay, let's move on. Do you, what did I tell you to go? Hebrews. Ten. 
So when you can really see that there's no longer need for sacrifice, there's no longer need for offering, it's not something you need to do in order to prove that you are righteous because God, Christ himself, has made you righteous. You get to have a whole other kind of life. So verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living covenant, which he opened for us through a curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stop right there. He's encouraged them to hold fast, to endure, right? He says, since we know that Christ has redeemed us, and we can walk right up to God. Like, this is huge. First of all, the veil is open for you through Christ's blood. And if by chance you're still a little shaky, then Jesus comes as the high priest and helps you walk right to the face of God. This is something people could not do. That they would hear the voice of God and be so terrified because they knew he held life and death in his hands and they did not know what to do. But you, me, we get to go with our overly petty selves with our consistently disappointing selves, Jesus. with our can't get right, with our bad motives, bad intentions, bad attitude, bad mood, bad money, bad everything. We could go right up to him and be like, um, yeah, Father, I was just wondering if you could kind of let me know your will. That's mind-blowing. Because only Moses could go to figure out what God wanted. Everybody else is too afraid to go. Hello? Now, Moses had the same sin as the rest of them, but he's the only one that approached God by faith and knew it. Do you understand? So now you get to walk right to the face of God and say, please let me know your will. I am here. I am your servant. Now, outside that room, you was a heathen. We couldn't even tell you no different than the rest of the non-believers, and that's for shame. For shame. But Christ walked right with you, right up to the Father's throne. And he encouraged you. Now make your request. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's cool. It's cool. I got you. Go ahead. Just, just, just ask him. Well, I, mean, I don't feel like I should. You know, we just talked about this out there. When you come in here, you're supposed to be here. Now act like you're supposed to be here and ask him. Right? Hello? Sometimes me and Shamar are sneaking into the country club. And I just leave him. I'm not sneaking in. He's sneaking in. Because I'm no longer there. <laughs> Technically, I'm supposed to be there. But I'm not there. So I tell him, just walk in and act like you're supposed to be there. Just walk in and act like you own the place. He's like, all right, cuz, I'm going to do that. He walk in. <laughs> they be like, Mr. Durham? He be like, yes, yes, that is me. Now, they know his name from my name. Not from his own name. <laughs> He's like, Mr. Durham, what do you have? I'll have a Sprite. Thank you so much. And it worked. It works every time. Well, if you go in there like, um, can I, do I sit here? Do I go ask? Uh, do I, who do I, can I? 
okay, I don't know really what to do. Can I just, Lord, I don't know if I, is this right? Can I, I don't really, I'm not really, I don't really understand it. Do you really, are you blessing me? Are you trying to hurt me? Is it a test? Is it a lesson? I really don't know what you want me to do. Have I done too bad? Have I made up for it? Is it the right way? He says, walk confidently in your hope. I can't stand that little, I'm so unsure. I get, I fuss at Jules about that every day. Because every day she's an overthinker. And every day I'd be like, stop overthinking. <laughs> she has not changed. <laughs> All she does is try my patience. <laughs> but on the flip side, that is one of her better traits. Because she is so careful that she, it makes herself trustworthy. But very frustrating when you're in a rush. All right, let's move on. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Verse 24. And let us consider how. 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 To stir up one another to love. This part. My church fails. And I can address it because I'm pretty decent at it. If I wasn't, you would not be here. I looked in the group meetings today and I was watching all the things that were happening in the church. Minister Hudson, Minister Monique, there are tons of things happening in this church. Now there are things happening that I don't even know what's happening. They're like, what are they doing? I don't know. They, they, they mad about that? Yeah, they mad. There was never a time where I did not know what was happening within this church? I knew what time it started, what it was going to be. And most times I was there 99% of the time. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm not even there 70% of the time. People just be meeting and doing stuff. The tribe chiefs bitch just be texting and messaging away. Admin be sending out reminders. Media be posting and posting and checking. Dancers be practicing and practicing. The men be fixing stuff. I be like... I just watched it this week and said... Y'all better do that. Y'all better do it. Y'all better, y'all better do that. I was so proud. I was like, y'all is getting in there with this. Come on, Shamar, join in. Yeah, let's do this thing. And it didn't require me to stir it up. But this how is what we have to focus on. How to stir one another up to love. And I assure you, it ain't fussing. Now. Hear me when I tell you this. The first couple of years of this church, there were a couple of members that are still here from the first couple of years. In the first couple of years of this church, I was a lot heavier handed then than I am now, by far, greatly, all right? In a lot of ways, I felt like I needed to overcorrect things before it got out of hand down the road, which is true. That was a good call, but it was heavy handed. Now I have to go back to my leaders and say, hey guys, I'm so sorry for the heaviness of my hand back in the day. But uh, listen, you can't do that to these people. Because they're responsible, that's what you told us. Don't tell, don't, don't, don't. I'm like, do as I say, not as I did. But I don't. I say I know. That is something I've done. And I'm sorry. But now, with this group, you can't handle it like that. Because every time I was heavy-handed, I saw the same people the next day, if not later that day. Like they would be at my house 
We just left church, not at all at my house. Not some, all. So yes, I could, now what y'all want to eat? See, that makes sense. But y'all be like, oh well. What? No, no. Because <laughs> that's what pastor would have done. Boom, put it on you. No, no, don't, don't. Don't put it on them. And the reason I say it, and I was so excited, is because this entire church runs on volunteerism. Oh, you need to let that sink in for a second. Everything you do, you don't even get paid to do it, including me. We just do it. Love of God, love of our church family, we believe in what God is doing here, and we serve. When you recognize that every person in your department or tribe offers their services voluntarily and the services that you get to head over, you're going to have to learn how to stir up them to love. Amen. It's a way to do it. Hello? Amen. So now I'm trying to work with our leaders on that, on that new way because that is not how they came in. I wasn't going to stir you up to love. You're going to do it because I said so. I'm just kidding. He says, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to assemble. Not forsaking the assembling of the brother, not neglecting to meet together, as is a habit of some. Stop right there. Earlier in this verse, we were talking about sinning and walking into the presence of God. Yeah. He's saying that there's a habit of some when we sin that we don't want to come together and meet. Who would ever thought that? Who would ever thought that people sometimes when they fall into sin, they don't want to come to church? And that's, that's funny. I never would have thought that. Verse, <laughs> you know, it's but encouraging one another. Not counting how many times they don't show up. Not counting how many times they get it wrong. And some of you have been a recipient of your many failures and your many words of encouragement. Yeah. Just constant, constant. In some cases, I put the thing you failed at right back in your hand. Nope, try it again. You'd be like, just take it from me. <laughs> take the responsibility from me. I am not getting this. And it's going to hurt the church. No, it ain't. Church going to be fine. Try it again. No, nah, keep trying it. Some things you have to learn, period. I, you can't get around it. Amen? Amen. He says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Like now is the last days. More people are like, I, we need to get together. When can we get together? When can we meet? When can we pray? Is the church open that day? What are we doing about this day? We praying about this. When are we coming together? Not... Y'all got another service? Oh, God. Like, I'm going to go to one, but, you know, I got to work. For if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fiery fire which will consume the, our adversary, the adversaries. A man who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment? Do you think will be deserved by a man who has spurned the son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace? What he's saying is when people disobeyed the, the law of Moses, they were just, they were just stoned to death. Like you broke that law? Two people said you did. Pfft. 
There's, you you got you to be careful in that, in that section to not have any animosity with anybody. Could you imagine if you had animosity with anybody at that time? How their base yourselves might be inclined to lie? I mean, you'll be walking real circumspectly. I'm so sorry, did I? Oh, did I step on your foot? My apologies. Oh, my goodness. Let me give you a Band-Aid for that. My, 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 my. Versus, did I step on your foot? You should have had it in the way in the first place. Come on, man. Because the mercy was given as the law. The law was the mercy. And what he's trying to say here is Jesus' sacrifice was the mercy. We can't be sacrificed again. How much more is God going to be very upset at the idea that you keep falling into sin after you've come to the knowledge of the sacrifice of his son? But recall the former days. This is verse 32. I'm skipping ahead. When you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed, abused, and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. Stop right there. In essence, there was a time when you first got saved that you endured these types of things. Now, you've been in it for a while. Now you've been serving for a minute. I ain't got time for that. They always doing that kind of stuff. Get on my nerves. Everybody always doing that. And you just complain, complain, and complain about everything. Everybody always, always. And I have to stop you and say, everybody don't always. Yes, they do. No, they do in your mind because you were upset. <laughs> but everybody don't always. And it's not always, all the time. Do you understand? Yeah. But the condition of your heart is allowing you to see everything with a hue of negativity. It is not the event that made you negative. It's how the event affected your heart that you can't change as to why everything is negative. You want me to go fix the problem? Uh-uh. I'm telling you, fix your heart. Because whether the problem moves or not, you should still be responding differently. You should see it differently. Shouldn't take 20 minutes for me to tell you to have empathy. Yeah. Well, can you look at it from this way? I don't, can you look at what well, can you try to look at it? Can we, and this is half of the church. Well, you go, I try to look at it this way. Oh my God. The only thing I'm trying to do is to get your heart right so that I don't have to micromanage everything you're doing. Because when your heart is right, you look for peace. You pursue it. You try to figure out how to work and stir each other up to love. You can see the hurt in your brother's sister's eye that you might have caused, and you try to make it right. When your heart is right. When it's not, then I got to go behind you. And say, well, dude, you, I'm so, well, you know, how do you, I heard you and such and such got into a little thing. I heard la, 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 la. Well, maybe y'all need to meet and have a lemon squeeze. That's because you can't seem to get your heart right. For we know him who said, the vengeance is mine. All right, verse 32. Um, go down to verse 36. For, verse 36. For you have need of endurance so that you may do the will of God and receive what is promised. You have need of endurance so that you may do the will of God. You have to persevere to do the will of God. You ain't done it if you ain't endured. If you quit, you have not done it. If you backed out, you have not done it. We ain't got to go question every, well, was it from God? See, now, see how you do? Now we got to go question whether it's from God because you want to quit. Now we got to question if it's from God because you, your heart's not right, because you can't seem to get to the level of the standard that's there, so maybe it's not God. 
That's not how we determine things. Because if this particular situation is causing you to see more of your wrongdoing, then this definitely came from God. I see more times that I'm failing in this. My, I just show up bad in this all the time. Y'all. Well, Pastor, I, I don't think it's for me because every time I do it, I just mess it up. No, it's for you. <laughs> because of that reason. Because of that reason. Because you get so boggled down with when you don't perform well because you associate that with your character and your righteousness that when you start stacking them up too much, you think it's better to quit than to endure. But that's a type of attitude Paul is speaking against as it relates to salvation. Maybe I just don't need to be a Christian since I can't stop sinning. No, you still need to be a Christian. We need to work on something else. But you have a proclivity to quit. It doesn't work. Now bear in mind, I think about quitting all the time. Every day. But as you can see, I have not done it. It's nothing wrong with wanting to quit. The problem is that you don't have any self-discipline to stop you from making decisions at the peak of your emotion. And now in this, you want to determine whether it was God or not. The problem ain't the fact that you didn't do it right. The problem is that you had no discipline. You had no temperance. You did this to me, I did this to you, you did my, I'm done. You did this to me, I did, we are no longer friends. You do this, you did this, I do this, I'm finished with you. What? This is a pattern that you have that when the going gets tough, you get going. But you make it noble, you know. Well, maybe we're just not meant. Well, maybe. I'm like, but, but y'all go to the same church. Well, maybe we're just not meant to be friends. But y'all go to the same church. I don't, I don't know how that. Do you know how close we are here? That's not going to work here. So because you recognize this thing keeps showing you to be a quote, unquote, bad person. Quote, unquote, not mature. So now you want to stop. You look at me to tell you it's okay. I'd be like, no. Let's sit back and watch this show. <laughs> because he chastens those whom he loves. Amen? Amen. Let's go on down to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 10 gave us a lot on a call to persevere. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us don't grow weary. But the idea in Hebrews is that every time he's encouraging people in the faith, he is also showing how exhausting and how wearisome we can get if we don't adjust. This is not an excuse to stay in those situations. This is a way to learn how to adjust. Because the longer it takes you to be resilient, the more that door to Satan stays open. You can't afford to stay down that long. You can't afford. The door is open. Satan can use anybody. Get yourself together. Do what God has called you to do. Let's move on. That's it. There's no, there's no other conversation about this. Well, maybe God didn't choose. We ain't going to decide that today. Today, you need to get yourself together. That's it. And the longer it takes you to get right, the bigger the, the opportunity for Satan comes in your life. 
That's why I try to praise you, get you, praise the Lord, soften your heart, because I'm like, you got jacked, something jacked up, and I don't know what happened. But if you don't clear it, you're going to be fighting and struggling during the entire message. And at some point, I'm going to just have to let you go, which is why I say, just go to sleep. Just go to sleep. Because you're, you're dragging us down. Amen? Oh, I ain't going to come to church no more. Well, there we go. My point exactly. As soon as we uncover something you didn't do right, it's an indictment against you as, as a whole person. No. Stop being so prideful. You ain't perfect. You ain't even perfect at the things that you do well. Well, I'm really good at this. Apparently, you're not. And that's okay. But for the grace of God, that's okay. It's all right. You know how many mistakes I make? I don't even know how many mistakes I make, Pastor. Probably a trillion. But that's okay. Because the grace of God. I'm going to count that. Hello? (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which easily, which clings so closely, some translations say, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What I love about this, the flow of these scriptures is that we would think that discouragement comes because of our sin. But the flow of these scriptures, from how sin is about desire, right? And how there's forgiveness and how we fall short. The flow of the scriptures would indicate from faith and righteousness to God to now, come on, don't grow weary. The flow of these scriptures would indicate that our discouragement has very little to do with the sin, but it is the desire to sin that fuels the discouragement. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we see it. It says, understand the sin to which you are most prone to. To what, to what situation we are most exposed. From what habit we often fall into. Some situation that we are most keen to, to do because of our age, because of our environment, because of our circumstances. He says, you need to understand that and know it and lay it aside. This is an important call. For when a man's sin, that one, that is always prone to go towards, when you get discouraged, when you feel unappreciated, when you feel overlooked, underwhelmed, stressed, upset, lonely, there's an environment and a habit that you run to. He says, that thing you need to lay aside because it clings too easily to you. It remains, and if it remains unsubdued, it will hinder you from running the Christian race as it takes you away from every motive for running and gives power to every discouragement. You think that it's the sin and the things that don't go right that causes your discouragement. It is your desire for sin that is the fuel of your discouragement. 
It's the secret desire you have to quit, the secret desire you have to have sex, the secret desire you have to go back to that. That is running underneath all of this. And that thing is giving fuel to your discouragement. It's pumping in more energy. Yeah, you need to go ahead and stop. Yeah, this is too much for you. You know you can't handle that. You know you can't ever get it right. It don't ever work for you. It is that desire of sin that is fueling your discouragement and not the other way around. Everybody say amen. When excluded, it is a sin that you so easily fall into that becomes the power supply of your discouragement. You want to prove want to prove me wrong? Then get rid of it and see. And you can. As soon as you make up your mind that I am never doing that again, I am never doing that again. Can't nobody stop you. And you don't have to have no seven step, 15 step program to not sin. Cause you too stubborn and hard headed as it is. All we gotta do is just set all of you on top of that thing. Just put your whole self on it and I promise you it'll go away. Once you decide that there is no going back. Once you decide that that is no longer an option for my life, you never have to worry about it again. The issue is that you still keep it in your pocket. The issue is that you don't think it's that wrong. That the justifications you made in order to do it still remain unchecked. That the people you counted as mean and offensive that created the environment that you thought was discouragement, you have not forgiven them. That's good, so everything they do is wrong. But it's not your discouragement that is leading you to sin. It is the desire you have to sin that is fueling your discouragement. It's adding strength to it. I know, because there ain't no way I could do all of this at this season of my life Come on. Come on. Ain't no way. Unless the Holy Spirit had to challenge my desires for sin. And since he's caused me to subdue those desires, to overtake them, now there's nothing that feeds my discouragement. Think about it. When I feel like, oh, I don't want to do this no more. It's all too hard. It's too confusing. People always saying I'm doing stuff wrong. Can't ever do enough for people. I'm like, you know, I'm just going to forget this. I ain't even doing that. Then what you going to do next? Well, I'm a... I'm going to just go out in the streets and save people. Okay, then what's going to happen when they, when they get saved? When I'm a, I'm a direct them to a church, I suppose. And when you direct them to the church, you're going to go with them. I guess I go to the church. I'll direct them to the church I'm going to. And then you're going to direct them to the church, and all of a sudden the church is going to start using you. And, then, and eventually you'll be right back where you live. But since there's no desire to sin, every concept that I think about when I want to quit leads me more to getting up. there's no desire for sin but when there's a desire to sin you just it just fuels your discouragement well I might as well not even go well nobody would care in the first place well I mean I might as well just go ahead and do this ain't nobody even loving me and it's just more fuel but when you remove that desire you like the dog on Energizer Bunny and people that have lived it can tell you it's the truth 
You're getting burned out and overwhelmed because you are struggling with the desires in your heart, with the sin and temptation in you, left unchecked, unresolved. You have yet to say that that is not an option for me. You still think it's an option. I know because you keep approaching me like it's an option. Or what if I... I was like, tell me, what, what if I just, I just fall off the edge? Off the edge of what? The cliff. I mean, the cliff is like two miles away. How? Next time I look, you're right at the edge. How in the world did you get to the edge so fast? If we two miles away, ain't nobody thinking we about to fall off the edge. Right. What enticed you to draw closer to the edge? Something had to entice you. And now you are really thinking, I might just do it. You're crazy. How many times are you going to get enticed to come to this edge? And have to be pulled all the way back. How many times? Wait. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry, Lord. I can't stand this stuff. I might as well. Oh, I'm sorry, Jesus. I'm sorry, Jesus. Ain't you tired? I mean, I would be so sick and tired of this. Like, I would just be like, oh, my God. Just. But as a believer, you can choose to not ever go back to that sin. And the power of God will assist in every way imaginable. But you're expecting that the power of God is going to change your desire. You don't need the power of God like a touch from God to change your desire. You need to acknowledge the love that God has, soften your heart, and change your own desire. Because nobody counts love, love, if they got to force you to do it. If he has to make you want to love him. Yeah. Oh, let me, let me give you my power so I can make you love me. Then that's not real love. But when he displays the outpouring of his love and you receive that and you say in response, I want to love you the same way. I want to lift your name up the same way. I want to glorify you to set with all that is within me. And the sin that so easily cling to us we immediately say no. The ones that call us unfaithful to him, that is not even an option. Man can come in the room, drop his clothes off, put $2,000 on the table, put your clothes on, and thank you for the money. <laughs> Got a kingdom of God to raise. It's an offering. Thank you so much. She'd be the hottest thing walking. You can imagine all the possibilities of your future. It's not the point. It's the sin. It's the temptation. And that is what fuels your discouragement. Hebrews 12, 7, 8 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. That God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God disciplines those, corrects 
those of us that sin. And if he doesn't correct it, then you're not his, his son. You call yourself somebody, you're not born of him. You're an, an, an illegitimate son. If you're born of him, then he corrects you. And that correction, the scriptures say, you have to endure. That we must not make light of the afflictions and be without feeling under them, for they are the hand and rod of God and are his rebukes for sin. They must not despond and sink under trials, nor fret and repine, but bear up with faith and patience. He's saying, if you feel like you have to quit under your disciplines, under the consequences of your sin, you need to stop. If you know that some consequence that happens to your life is because of a sin, he said, don't lose heart in it. Stay upheld in it. Because that consequence proves that God is your father as he is using it to discipline you. I'm grateful of the afflictions that I might learn your laws and statutes. But when you sit under the hand of God, heavily disciplining you for an action, and this makes you want to quit, makes you want to leave, makes you want to back up, he's saying you can't do that. Because if he doesn't correct you, you're not his child, and you need to be corrected. And the circumstances and consequences he's using to correct you. But you get all despondent, numb, disconnected. I mean, I was there, but I really wasn't there. You know, I was just not in a place today, Sunday. Really? That's his heavy hand. Is. So you have to preserve yourself. Save yourself. From him? Look at the earlier part of that verse of Hebrews 12 and 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. If you endure chastening, right, okay. This verse says, it is for discipline. In essence, you fell into this sin because you had no discipline. Am I right? If he chastens you, y'all don't want to help me. If he brings the consequences to your life and uses it as correction and you also sin in the midst of that because you can't endure the correction, then you will never have discipline. You will always fail in this because the discipline that is needed only the father can give you and he's choosing this consequence to give it to you and you are wanting to quit in the midst of the consequences. You will never have any temperance. You'll never have any self-control. Never. The least you could do is endure his chastening because he's a good father. Don't set your heart to complain against it. Don't entertain thoughts and say, this is too hard. I don't like it. Maybe it's not for me. You're setting yourself up for failure. You're dragging yourself to that cliff. And the only reason you're thinking that is because you secretly are itching for a little bit of that sin you used to go into. Because a believer that is truly afflicted learns to rely on God. Y'all don't want to help me. A believer that has truly been broken relies on God because you're the only one that can raise the dead. The believer that's truly broken leans towards God, does not fall back from God. The fact that you're prone to fall back is a sign of your desire for sin.
because you think that you'll always have to struggle with this desire. No, you don't. It don't mean it won't show up. But if I beat your tail once, what do I know? I will beat your tail again. And since I did not add any strength to that thing, I'm pretty sure it's still conquerable. Because I starved the sin and grew my faith. So now even that giant seems like a grasshopper. You can walk by things like, I mean, that was sexy, but ain't nobody, ain't nobody trying to fool up with that. Yeah. Meanwhile, you walk by the same thing. Well, I'm just saying, you know, I was just saying, you know what I'm saying? I'm just saying, you know. Hey, what? Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. It's a grasshopper now. First, Pastor, I can't stop thinking about him. Pastor, I can't stop thinking about him. Pastor, I don't know what I'm going to do. You got, a, you got a situation on your hands. Because you developed a habit and a desire. Your flesh, that is very much so a part of you, is pulling you towards a sin. And when that thing is erased, you do not get discouraged. You break and you lean on God. Like, ooh, this is too big for me. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, too much for me. Above my pay grade. Thank you, Lord. I do it all the time. Ooh, mm, mm, above my pay grade. Mm. Lord, better get them. That's it. That's I'm done. I am done with it. And I go to bed. I go to bed. Peace. I don't go to somebody else's bed. Ain't nobody in my bed but my dog Roman. We fine. I ain't struggling. I'm not itching to, to, to make personal cakes. I'm not trying to walk, watch baking shows. I'm not struggling to call that person or not call that person. Because the Father has allowed me to learn how to subdue my desire. Now, if you know you haven't learned to subdue your desires, to to conquer them, this is not the season for you to engage in anything related to them. Well, I don't think I, I think I've subdued it. Are you discouraging and wanting to quit all the time? But that ain't got nothing to do. Yes, it does. We've already went through that. We already went through it. It is your desire for sin that fuels your discouragement. It is not the other way around. I'm a living testimony. True. If anyone should be discouraged, it is I. I mean, not because of you, because you're perfect, but the rest of these imperfect sheep. <sighs> Plus my own imperfections. And my own grief. And the own, my own money problems. And then the church money problems. I mean, oh my, I can go on for a list of weight that is pressed down. But since there's no desire to sin, there is nothing pushing me towards discouragement. But when I feel discouraged, I lean on God and he raises me from the dead. Every time. Every time. Every time. Every time. When I say it's too much of me, I can't bear it. He raises me from the dead. When I say I don't know what to do, he ra- I-, I don't know if I can handle it, he raises me from the dead. And I look for him to do so. And it's easy to look to that because there is no sin fueling my discouragement. 
I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm saying the Spirit of God will help you subdue those things. And you need to learn when he's trying to test you on that. And if you keep seeing it show up in the back of your mind or in your life, he is testing you. He wants you to conquer it, to subdue it, because he sees this thing as adding more power to your discouragement, as giving you a reason to quit. Some type of enjoyment in quitting. Some type of temporary peace in stopping. He knows it exists, so he's saying, let's kill that. Let's not kill the good works. That sounds stupid. I'm going to stop doing so much for the church. Okay, that's smart. When he says we should stir one another up, he says that you have to keep assembling, especially considering we're so easily tempted. That's pretty much what he said. We all easily tempted. You need to get together, everybody, especially as the day approaches or more lawlessness creates in, in, in times. You need to just stay around each other, stir one another up, encourage one another, yeah. not back off, take time. Standing all over the house. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Were you cut to the wick today? Was your heart challenged beyond a standard that you think you could reach? Come on. Surrender to the Father. Let the Holy Spirit bring every failure and every habit to your front, forefront of your mind. Come on. Is the Spirit of the Lord wanting to encourage you? Rather discourage you? Is the Holy Spirit wanting to show you that you are forgiven? And that these actions do not define your identity, but you are found in Christ? Come on, let the chains of insecurity fall. The chains of pride fall. The chains of fear fall. Receive the love of God.